this uh, this evening. Um, I'd like to talk about uh, wisdom, well-being, and awakening. Uh, so I thought this would be a good bet that hopefully all of you are interested in at least one of those, if not two, or maybe even all three. I thought I would tantalize you with a, a juicy title and now I've got to live up to it, so we shall see. Um, one of the things I want to uh, explore is the um, question of what really supports our well-being and the place of our meditation practice uh, in the midst of that broader question. I'm mentioning today this question, how can I take care of myself? It's also this broader question of what really enables us to flourish, to, um, to really be well. And also to begin to offer some reflections um, about how our practice may be about something else. So for many of us, a sense of well-being is a central aspect of why we would practice meditation. And that's a, a, uh, an aspiration I would really encourage, something I'm deeply interested in. And there may also be other dimensions. So the sense of well-being may not completely exhaust our uh, sense of why we practice. And this uh, question of awakening may be uh, an aspiration for practice which is not simply to do with well-being. And so we can uh, explore these different aspects. Um, I'm very happy that I feel this is actually quite a traditional Buddhist uh, thing to do. Uh, the Buddhist teachings often work on many different levels and there's the teachings on the uh, happiness of this life a lot of the Buddhist teachings around those you know, how to how to be happy in this life and the traditional teachings as you may know had a, a multi-life perspective of life death and and rebirth so there would also be teachings on a happy future life um, and also teachings on on liberation teachings on freedom from the whole cycle. Uh, so in some senses uh, this talk is echoing uh, this, this tradition. As human beings we're faced with this question of old age, sickness and death. And there are many ways we can respond uh, to this question. And I was reflecting today that there are these ancient professions, both of which I profoundly and deeply respect. So there's the profession of medicine. If you think about doctors dealing with old age, sickness and death. And then we have the profession, if we can call it that, of spiritual teachers in many different forms. And I'm really interested in this question how uh, the medical profession uh, 
and the spiritual profession, <laughs> we can use such a phrase, are um, coming to these questions from different angles and completely complementary. It's such a beautiful thing to do, to devote your life to, to medicine. And uh, also a beautiful thing to do to devote your life to spiritual practice and teachings. And uh, I was reading a, a book recently uh, about a, a woman who was really quite sick and had um, one of her legs was very, very swollen. And I think the other wasn't so, uh, so bad, but one of, these one of her legs was really, really swollen. And she was um, talking about this to, to a teacher and uh, saying, you know, I'm miserable, this is awful. And the teacher said, well, you know, what's happening? Why are you so distressed? She said, well, look, look at this leg, look how it is. And the teacher looked at her a bit bemused, and then after a while said to her, ah, I see, you're suffering from the belief that that leg should look like the other one. <laughs> and, <laughs> and interestingly, Interestingly, apparently this person really got that and said, oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> what a relief. And it made me think, if I went to the GP <laughs> and the GP said that, I'd be really disappointed, you know. And in a way, this, this presents the, the two professions, if you like. So that would be a totally inappropriate thing. I would suggest, for a doctor to say, right? <laughs> because the point of being a doctor is that you can say, yeah, let's see what we can do to heal your swollen leg, to reduce the swelling, to get you better on a physical level. And we're so grateful for all the expertise we have in that field. It's so, relieves so much suffering And there's also a sense that the work of the medical profession, I, hopefully you understand the context in which I'm saying this, in the end it, it fails. Yeah? So you cannot, through medicine, solve the problem of sickness and death in some kind of ultimate way. We can't eradicate them. So it's enormously and tremendously helpful in healing those things as much as we can but it leaves us with another question, which is how do we make peace with the fact that these are fundamental aspects of our condition? And that's perhaps where the spiritual profession, if you like, steps in with this other question. And so it seems to me that this, this kind of... Uh, difference echoes itself in all kinds of areas. So you may know that in Buddhist teachings it's taught that craving is the origin of suffering. If we want to understand suffering, want to understand the cause, the origin, we look at craving. Um, this is a really deeply profound teaching and I will be uh, returning to this in the talk. It's a teaching I think about every day. <laughs> and from another perspective, you could argue it also has its limitations. I mean, this is not a complete picture of 
the conditions that lead to human flourishing. If I just add a few more things, you know, well, what about clean water? You know, dirty water is a pretty strong cause of suffering, I could say. Or not having shelter, not having food, not having friendship, not having an education, living in a war-torn country. And you see how all these things work on different levels. Yeah? So a sense of what really supports our well-being. I mean, if I came across a person who didn't have access to clean water, my sense would be rather uncompassionate to say, you're craving clean water, let go. And accept the disease water. Yeah? The compassionate thing to do is to help, help people get clean water, help people get shelter, help people get education, help people... You know, the conditions in which we flourish. And yet it's also the case if we are in a situation where there's no clean water. That there are different levels of struggle that may be created out of that. So none of this takes away the need for the clean water. Yeah? But just like the person with the swollen leg there, there are other struggles that may or may not be built around that. So both of these levels are hugely significant. Hopefully that's clear. It would be a strange person that said, let's get rid of all the doctors and just have spiritual teachers. But equally the other way around. You know, we need both. Uh, we need the sense of intervening, working with conditions, creating the conditions in which we flourish and the sense that ultimately we're not in control of all the conditions. And how do we make peace with that? How do we work with that? The, the wonderful novelist and philosopher Iris Murdoch, I don't know if you know her, um, in one of her books called Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, she has a, a sentence which I've thought about ever since I read it. One set of values obscures another. If you think about ethics and think about philosophical ethics, all sorts of systems, uh, one set of ethics can tend to obscure another one. And it's a little bit like um, Zohar was saying yesterday with these ways of looking, so many ways of looking. And she said that when she was young, she thought the most important thing in ethics was freedom. It's a sort of existentialist philosophy. You know, what matters is to be free and to make choices and to live an authentic life. And then when she got older, she thought, well, maybe freedom's not quite the thing after all. And she was very interested in virtue and cultivating temperance and courage and wisdom. And a, and a virtuous life was the key to ethics. And then she got older too, and she said, well, actually, yeah, freedom and virtue have their place. But so does clean water, shelter, housing, and, and what would be a more utilitarian ethics, if you like, that looks at the sort of ma these material conditions, what conditions create the greatest happiness. I don't know if you've had that thought here, but, you know, here I can sometimes sit and I feel, you know, feeling a peace breath coming in, a sense of kind of being beyond conditions can arise. And yet it's also true, how long would we be here if the water stopped? 
the Gaia house? I mean, I'd, I don't know the answer. Could ask the coordinators. But you imagine if suddenly there's no water here. I mean, fairly quickly, we'd, we'd have to send you all home, I'm afraid. <laughs> you know. So our, our explorations of the subtleties of meditation are hugely dependent here also on the supportive conditions. And a lot of care goes into creating and sustaining these conditions. So let's think a little bit more about this level of well-being. You know, what really supports our well-being? And uh, as I've mentioned, I teach the eight-week mindfulness courses, and there's a, a, a really lovely week there where we, we look at this in detail, this question, uh, how can I take care of myself that I've mentioned, and often built around two words, which are what nurtures us and what depletes us terms of our well-being, what nurtures and what depletes. And the more I've taught it, I don't know, I've probably taught 30 of these courses or something. And every time I do this exercise, I think, there's more in this, there's more in this, there's more in this. It's great, because it sounds deceptively simple. But as a contemplation, I think it's really useful to come back to again and again. So sometimes what I get people to do is I draw a, a line in a, on a piece of paper and you write down everything you do during the day. So first thing, the alarm goes off, then you have a shower, get the kids ready, make the breakfast, go to work, or whatever you do, yeah? And you write all these things down, then doing your emails or whatever you do at work, and you come home, and the things you do at home. Uh, and then you go through this list, and you have a look. Which of those things nurture me, give me a feeling of being renewed and nourished, and which things feel more depleting, leave me feeling more run down, um, less able to cope. So in my list, things like having a warm bath goes in the nourishing list. You know, listening to my favorite music. And perhaps for many people, doing the emails is the kind of thing that might be in the, in the depleting list. So you can do this, but then as you contemplate it, it becomes more and more, there's actually more and more depth in that because it really leads to a question, well, if you look at the list of things that you think of as depleting, the question is, well, why? What it is about these things that makes me feel more run down? And when you do this exercise, some of them you can just cross off. <laughs> So I'm not suggesting this is true for everybody, but for some of us, you know, looking at Facebook first thing in the morning and seeing your friends' pictures of them in the Bahamas when you've got a really busy day at work, you, know, <laughs> you can just not do that. You know, I mean, there's actually really helpful exercise to do again and again. There's some things that we do that are pretty depleting and we don't need to do them. It's just a habit and we can stop. Great, nice and simple. Other things we can't do that with. So the question becomes, how can I do it differently? And for me, this has been an ongoing creative question. It's a lovely question to bring to again and again. There were sometimes particular family visits that I found depleting. But I realized just with a, a few twists, they could be nurturing. Making sure that I had a walk in the middle of the day, you know, 
if I sat in somebody's front room for eight hours and the TV was on and <laughs> nobody was talking, I just got a bit flat. <laughs> I don't know, this is too much information now. You know? But, you know, in the middle of this family visit, oh, can I say, okay, I'm going to do the family visit, but have a walk in the local park in the middle of it. It's so interesting, just a little tweak. And then the whole story around, oh, this is a really depleting thing. Well, not necessarily. And then other members of the family came for the walk. It's great. But this, again, too, then becomes a more and more subtle contemplation. Very often I find if I slow down, things are less depleting. Our old friend mindfulness is there. It's a great example, a great exploration. You think anything that you think of is, oh, you know, I don't want to do this, I just need to get it out of the way. What happens when we do it with more care, more attention, more mindfulness? I really encourage you to experiment with this again and again. My experience of shaving has changed through this. I don't know why, but it was one of the things, oh, I don't like doing that. And now it's different. Take the time, hot water, oh, hands in the hot water, that's lovely. Put them on the face, sorry. Give myself a little, you know, hands on the face, nice sort of self-care. Putting the shaving foam, taking my time. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> Mowing the lawn is different for me now. Whenever I mow the lawn now, okay, start with a cup of tea. I've told you how much I like tea. <laughs> you start, start with a tea, put that on the garden bench, sit down, look at the lawn, take the time. You know, and if I find myself beginning to sort of rush it, okay, stop, have a little bit more of the tea, stop. <laughs> this is suburban dharma for you. you know, the dharma of lawn mowing. Oh, I wanted something radical at my house. There we go. Yeah. Can you see, in a way, that there's an ongoing depth of reflection here, though? That that question, what makes something nurturing, what makes something depleting, is an ongoing thing we can explore more and more and more. There's so much freedom in that. So that's one way we can really cultivate well-being. Another way I thought I'd share with you that you may well know, and I'm so heartened that this is actually in, this is not a Buddhist list, this is in, in the public sphere now very much. Um, it comes from something called the New Economics Foundation, and it's called The Five Ways to Well-Being. And uh, I, I think it's wonderful. And I'm really pleased that some you know, public organizations take this on as a, as a, as a, a framework. I have a friend of mine who's a social worker in Nottingham and they use it um, to what's called co-production, which is again a rather lovely Buddhist sounding name, where people get together and create their own services, you know, using these uh, five principles. I thought I'd mention them because they're, again, this, if we're all, I presume, interested in this question, what serves our well-being? It's really helpful someone's come up with a list. You know, the Buddha is in good company with his lists. So the first of these is to, to connect. 
uh, to connect with others. I uh, went to um, one of our, our local sitting groups once and was talking to them about how they, w- they were working. And they also run day retreats. It's interesting how we all bring our assumptions to this. So as a teacher, I had the view that the day retreats was a thing. I said, oh, okay, so the main thing you're doing is running these day retreats. And then in, in between the day retreats, you have this sort of weekly group that keeps you going until a teacher comes. <laughs> and uh, one of the people there, I was so struck by it. She said, no, 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 I don't see it like that at all. For me, the gathering together with others every week, that's, that's my practice to do that. And then as well as that, it's nice when one of you guys comes along and gives us a few ideas. <laughs> Thanks very much for coming. But it's the connection. It's the sangha. It's the community. You know, so to feel connected is so significant for our well-being. And I, I hope uh, you feel that here. I really do. I mentioned that on the first day, although we're in silence, it's still very much a communal practice. And you may see that in these next few days, the more you sense, actually, I'm, I'm really doing this with others. I've been doing a little a bit of uh, work looking at some of the research on the mindfulness eight-week programs. And there's, as you may know, I think, I can't tell you how many now, but a huge number of research papers. And one of the things I found interesting is that the results for a mindfulness group are stronger when there is no active control. But when there is an active control, I'll explain what this means in a minute, the results are less clear. In other words, if you give people a mindfulness course and say, how do you feel at the end compared to how do you feel at the beginning? You know, people say they feel better. The research is a little bit more nuanced than this. I'm giving you my layperson's example. But if you compare a group of people who've done eight weeks of mindfulness to a group of people who've met up and shared experiences and been together also for eight weeks. The difference is slightly less profound, pronounced, I would say. And to me, I don't, A, I'm not surprised, and B, I actually really don't mind. So it's sort of, in the scientific mind, it sometimes indicates that maybe mindfulness itself or the practices are not always the active ingredient in some of that people feeling better. That many people feel better by gathering together. <laughs> and to me, that, that, that's totally what I would expect, totally in tune with uh, the Buddhist teachings. But to connect, it just shows you how, how rich that is. In those groups, I think so often the learning is when some, we realize Oh, your mind does that too. (laughs) It's not just me that feels sleepy. It's not just me whose mind goes all over the place. It's not just me who has X, Y, Z. 
it's that shift from feeling it's a personal problem to seeing, ah, these are universal patterns and we feel connected. The second of these five ways to well-being is to learn, to learn new things, to continue to learn. And again, I was reflecting on Zohar's talking about the ways of seeing. I think learning new things can really get us out of a particular rut or a habit or particular ways of seeing. To be open to new perspectives. And again, it's, it really feeds something in us to continue to open, to learn, to grow, to develop. The third of these ways is to be active, to be physically active. And this is partly the inspiration why I've mentioned a few times this thing around going for, uh, you know, for, for some of you at least, if you wish to, to, to walk outside and see what that does. It's such a support, you know, we are embodied creatures. I mentioned it a bit the other day. <laughs> it's slightly humbling to think of the number of times when I sat kind of trying to work all kinds of things out in my mind. What should I do? How should I do this? And actually, you know, getting out, getting some fresh air, getting some exercise can just give a completely different perspective on things. You know, it's just, it's a kind of, we know that dogs need this, don't we? You've got a dog, you can take them out for a walk every day. But maybe we're not so different. <laughs> the fourth of these things, again, as a Dharma teacher, makes me very happy to see this is in this list, is to notice things. To notice the world around you. We've been doing that. Don't need to elaborate on that. <laughs> but the, you know, the, the trees, the, the birds, grass under the feet, sky. And it really can take us out of the looping thoughts we sometimes have. And finally, to give. Again, this is almost like a very traditional Buddhist list that's turned up in public policy, but to give is recognized as being so supportive to our, to our well-being. We've taken it out of ourselves in that way. The story I've shared many times is of me walking down the street in Nottingham and seeing a, a woman struggling with some uh, laundry. I was in a, uh, a little loop, I can't remember what it was, but you know, do you know these self-preoccupied loops? I don't know if you've ever had one of those. But anyway, I, I was in one of those. They shouldn't have done this, that shouldn't have happened, something else, something else. You know, just going like. And I saw this woman struggling with her laundry and I stopped and said, would you like some help? And she said, no, thank you, I'm fine. Dramatic story, that, isn't it? That's, it. That's the end of the story. I'm looking forward to the film. Anyway, I, she, she, she said, no, thank you, I'm fine. But this is the, the interesting bit of the story. It was just my state of mind was totally different afterwards. You know, just that act of giving, the act of 
moving out of the sense that there's just all this stuff I'm going through and it's churning around and I've got to deal with it and I've got to get more and more and more, you know, that. And ah, someone else. Would you like some help? <laughs> you know, that's all what that does. And while you're here, again, if you wish to play and experiment with this, you may see your practice as a gift. You know, by coming here, by sitting in the hall, you're supporting each other in a very real sense. You're supporting me in a very real sense. I, I only manifest as a Dharma teacher when there are people to talk to. I could sit here on my own, you know. <laughs> you know. Zoha said yesterday, these talks are co-created. You know, the feeling of your attention is, you know, helps me to give the talk. That could be really helpful, couldn't it? You know those <coughs> sittings where you feel really tired or there's so much going on, you, oh, another one, bang, the bell's gone. What would it be to just come in and think, okay, I'm going to do this for the benefit of others. What's that like? I'm just going to sit here as an offering of support to those around me. Yeah. It's a shift, isn't it, from I'm going to get in here and deal with my stuff and work it all out. And, yeah. So to connect, to learn, to be active, to notice and to give. And uh, I can certainly put these on the on the board later, but it's lovely to contemplate what really nourishes our well-being. It's, it's quite a powerful list, that actually. If you just think of, say, quite often people might struggle when they retire. You know, retirement is something that many of us may look forward to and it's a very common story to hear. Actually, it's a difficult transition. And uh, that uh, particular framework gives you an understanding of why that might well be the case. You know, from going to work and then not going to work, less opportunity to connect, perhaps not learning so many things. So when people are retired, again, it's about finding ways to get those five things in place. And I partly want to offer this to you because I don't want to sound too heretical, but it's not like meditation is the only thing that's helpful. <laughs> you know, I've got into that view before. Okay, there's a lot of going on in my life. Meditate, meditate. You know, there's other things: connecting with others, learning, being active, giving. So. It's a beautiful question, how can I support and nourish my well-being? And the Dharma practices are also pointing to something else. So these are teachings of, of waking up, teachings of awakening. And so just contemplating what that means. If I can go back to the lady with the, the swollen leg, the woman with the swollen leg. What's happening there? You're in a place where you're thinking, 
I'm, str I'm struggling, I'm suffering, this is unbearable, I've got this swollen leg. And come across this, to me, very brave teacher who says something like, you're suffering from the belief that that leg should look like that one. But that person, a real release of suffering in that moment. Not a release of the swollen leg, that's still there. The dukkha and the pain of that is there. But something's gone in that moment. Yeah. It's uh, the really sharp end of uh, impermanence is bereavement and loss. But we can even in those times, sometimes have those moments, the deep grief for the person who's gone, the sense of sadness, profound sadness, because we loved them. I don't think any of these teachings are saying, you know, somebody's gone and we just blank about it. Yeah, grief, sadness. And there can also sometimes be a sense that in the deepest sense, it's okay. It's okay. You know, sometimes it takes a while to get to that place. But this is again, I think, the, the feeling of these teachings on, on making peace with old age, sickness and death. Not eradicating old age, sickness and death, but somehow making peace with that. And the sense that that's possible for us. So, in reflecting more on an aspiration to awakening, which we may say is, you know, as well as or beyond this sense of practicing for, for well-being. Um, I thought I'd get some help. So fortunately, Rodney Smith has written a book called Awakening. Thank you, Rodney. And uh, it's a... Uh, Second line is very helpful actually. It's called a paradigm shift of the heart, awakening, a paradigm shift of the heart. And that notion of a paradigm shift is very helpful. And if you're familiar with this, sometimes it's used a term used in philosophy where there's a whole a whole way of looking or a whole way of seeing or a whole set of assumptions that shifts. Sometimes they talk about paradigm shifts in science. So Einstein's science was a paradigm shift from Newton's. It wasn't just more of the same or progressing, it was something radically different, a radically new perspective. Or if you've seen the famous duck rabbit or similar things, you know, they, these, there's a figure, it looks like a, well, you're looking at it, you think it looks like a duck. And then something happens to your perception and you say, oh, it's a rabbit. Yeah. If you've seen those kind of things, or the old lady or the young, uh, the young lady. Yeah, there, there are many of these uh, um, kind of psych uh, psychological drawings that illustrate this sense of a, sh a sudden shift of perspective, a sudden shift of perspective. That's, it seems to me, what happened to the woman with the swollen leg. I'm this person who's struggling with a swollen leg and I can't bear it and it's just awful and there's nothing I can do about it because I've got this swollen leg and then phew, 
something different. Gosh, there's a belief here that's creating extra struggle around this. So I thought I would uh, read just one. This is a, a wonderful book I'm just beginning to get to know. But it's very, it's very rich. So I just thought I'd read a paragraph and then reflect a little bit on what that may, may mean. Just to begin to stimulate the, these reflections for us. So he says, when we see that objects are not as dependable as we once believed, our desires for them begin to wane. As objects hold less of an attraction, our thoughts no longer stray into the future where we believe our desires can be satisfied. And we begin to shift away from endlessly thinking about future possibilities towards stabilizing our consciousness here and now. Mindfulness becomes the tool of choice that both limits needless thinking and connects us firmly to the ground of our experience so that experience can be explored and understood. As this process unfolds, mindfulness discerns that thought is without real substance or validity and the mind gets quieter on its own. With less thought and more stillness, comes the flowering of formless awareness. So this is just one paragraph, and my sense is that we could contemplate this one paragraph fruitfully for, uh, for much of our practice, but just to reflect a little bit on this. And so he says, when we see that objects are not as dependable as we once believed, our desires for them begin to wane so what, that, what might that be? What are the objects that we thought were dependable? Could be almost anything. I like to interpret object quite widely. So it certainly might be material objects. It might be material possessions. You remember my story the other day about the yellow coat? You know, the, the feeling that, ah, this is going to be wonderful, and then, oh, I've got it, and, oh, it didn't give me quite everything I thought. Now, that circle of, oh, it's going to be wonderful, it's going to really do it for me, it's going to be fantastic, and then, oh, it's changed or it's disappointing. Oh. Ah, it's not that, it's this. And, oh, no, that's changed. Oh, that seems to be disappointing. Oh, dear, tried to. Ah, oh, don't worry, it's this one. So the question is, how many times do we go around the circle? <laughs> before we begin to see what's happening. You know, so th there's this thing about clinging to these objects. So it might be material things. Again, speaking personally for a while, I think very often for me it's actually it can be a sense of status. It could be a sense of it might be to do with certain experiences. And if you've been uh, traveling sometimes, sometimes people who do a lot of traveling can almost talk about countries as if they're possessions. I've done Morocco, you know, great. <laughs> yeah, so the whole place is ticked off. And it <laughs> you know. But that, that sort of possessive mentality can attach itself to experiences, you know. Again, forgive the, the personal reference here, but uh, one may even do it in relation to, say, being a Dharma teacher. 
I mean, being a Dharma teacher, to tell you the news if you didn't know, is just another condition. So if you think, oh, I'd love to teach at Gaia House, we, you know, some of us have been through this one, I'd love to teach, <laughs> and then, oh, and it is good, I'm happy to be here. But as a condition, it's no more dependable than going to Morocco or <laughs> having three cars. It has its joys and sorrows, and if you attach to it, it causes struggle. So that, and that's the case with all sorts of things. Or is it a fantasy about writing a book? I don't know. It might be all kinds of things for us. And again, nothing against writing books. But sometimes it can be the feeling that that's going to really do it for me. That's the thing where this is talking about. It's going to deliver something final, permanent, and oh, I'll have arrived. And then the critics write their reviews, or you've got to write another one. <laughs> Martine uh, Bachelor, who teaches here, she's very funny about that. You know, she says she had all this thing about a book and it's going to coming out. And da, da, da. Finally, came through the door and the publisher, and she looked at it. You know, about 15 minutes looking at it, thinking, "Oh, I've written my book," and then goes on the bookshelf. <laughs> and it's like, oh, what now? <laughs> yeah. So when objects, uh, when we see that objects are not as dependable as we once believed, our desire for them begins to wane. Can you see that connection? So once we begin to see these things are not going to deliver some kind of eternal peace, the desires soften, wane. An object holds less of an attraction. Our thoughts no longer stray into the future where we believe our desires can be satisfied. That's interesting, isn't it? So the sense of time is there. You see how the sense of time is very linked to the sense of craving for an object? Because the object isn't here and now, it's somewhere else. I'm not in Morocco now, I'm going to do that in a few months. So there's a, a sense that it's always somewhere else. Yeah, It's always somewhere else. It's around the corner, the next thing in the future. Yeah? The object that's going to deliver is in the future. So with mindfulness we're beginning to let go of that, sort of projecting all our happiness and well-being into the future. Now, go to the last uh, section of this. As the process unfolds, mindfulness discerns that thought is without real substance or validity. And the mind gets quieter on its own. That's a strong statement, isn't it? Thoughts are without real substance or validity. So, so much of that is a thought-created world, isn't it? You know, I'm th in the world of thoughts, there's a feeling that there is something else, somewhere else, that's going to deliver. And we begin to see that's a story. Another way of saying that thought created. We begin to see that's a story. These thoughts coming and going. We're beginning to see through that. That's why this practice is called waking up. Like waking up from a dream. Waking up from dreaming of all these stories of fulfillment. Beginning to see their dreamlike quality. And the mind gets quieter on its own. That's interesting. Again, there's a sense of 
a place in our practice where we're really stepping out of the way. There's not so much forcing, efforting, trying this technique, that technique to make the mind still, but seeing through these constructions, you know, and then the mind just begins to settle. And just to offer one more sentence from him. He says, we are called upon to use mindfulness to investigate what the sense of self is, what it runs on and how it arises, rather than act from the conditioned belief that we are insufficient or need something we believe we do not have. And he says here, the key here is that the sense of self never feels that it has enough of anything. And that is what needs to be learned. I'll say that again. The sense of self never feels that it has enough of anything. And that is what needs to be learned. Yeah. So there's something around the sense of self when that's arising that intrinsically feels lack. A very fundamental sense of lack, not enough. And from that, if that's not seen, then we begin to try and fill that lack with all manner of projects. Yeah. The sense is to see more and more that illusory nature of the sense of lack illusory nature. The phrase I find very helpful, a skillful means, is it's already here. You, know, you can drop that into your practice sometimes. It's already here. And the philosopher in you may get busy. Well, what's the it? What does that mean, the it? Prove that it exists. And where is it? He said, it's here. Well, come on, show me. So rather than that being a kind of metaphysical statement of truth, I think it's very helpful to see it as a skillful means. It's already here. See what that's like to drop that into the heart. It's already here. It's already here. Oh, taking time just to be still together just for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.